Welcome to this OLTV podcast series titled The Eastern Fathers on Involuntary Sin by Father Maximus of the Holy Resurrection Monastery in St. Nazan's, Wisconsin. This sixth episode is Practical Applications of the Principles of Involuntary Sin. We're now at our sixth reflection, reflecting on involuntary sin, seen through the theology of St. John of Damascus, and in particular, the idea that human nature is an integral whole, the integrity of human nature. In the last few reflections, I've tried to show how the theology of St. John of Damascus and the tradition in which he wrote tried to include both voluntary and involuntary aspects of behavior within its account of what it means to flourish as a human being. What I've tried to do is show how these theologians in the Eastern Christian tradition adopted intellectual strategies to do this. Underlying these strategies is a vision, a holistic vision of what it means to exist as a human being, in which the relationship between a human subject and the world outside the subject, the object of experience, the objects, the multiple objects of experience, the relationship between us as human beings and the world in which we live is one of continuity and reciprocity and union drawn up into the ever greater union with the source of all being God. To St. Maximus the Confessor in particular is owed the idea that this relationship is coordinated by the natural will, which is not so much a faculty of choice, which would be gnomic will, but natural will is the means by which human nature achieves union with the proper objects of choice, the proper objects of its deepest existential desires. Damascene clarifies this position by noting that earthly existence requires that the natural will settle upon concrete objects, ta teleta, for its realization, which ensures that uh, Eastern Christian Orthodox anthropology remains always grounded in a vision of unity between human nature and the various world in which it operates, physical, material, intellectual, spiritual. This is a vision secured by the Neoplatonic theory of the two acts that we've talked about, a concept that was capable of accounting ontologically for natural integrity on the basis of the erotic generation of reality as form or energia, energy, from the single divine source of all being and knowledge. This in turn opened up a resolution of the problem of freedom and necessity, in which these were seen not as opposing states, but as phases in a single ecstatic movement of exit and return. 
Damascene seized upon these various strands of thought to present his vision with great acuity. One of his major strategies to achieve this was constantly to contrast his orthodox account with opposing notions or contradictory notions of human existence in which a certain opposition was always found between the human subject and the objects of experience, including the body, especially when that opposition was conceived as one of combat, the mind against the body, the spirit against the body, and so forth. This is the critique that underlies St. John of Damascus's treatment of thought systems as diverse as Manichaeism and Originism and the Salianism. All of this goes together to craft a, a truly remarkable anthropological vision. The human being as syndesmos, as a unity of material and intellectual and spiritual realities, which sweep up even necessary and involuntary experience into the great movement of divine freedom. It's not surprising that this vision, which is an anthropological one, is at the same time a theological one, a Christological one. In a profound sense, the view, the, this vision of human existence grounded in the integrity of nature is a theandric vision, a vision grounded in the incarnation, the God-man, Christ, as the paradigm for human existence. And for this reason, it is also an eschatological vision. It's a vision of where we are going, much more than where we've come from. Where we are going. The human experience repeats the pattern seen by Carpus in that vision we talked about in the writings of St. Dionysius the Areopagite. Christ persuades the soul of the possibility of escaping necessity by coming down and uniting himself to the soul in the very jaws of hell, the very jaws of death. And upon this divine human sin ergia, Christ descending, the human ascending by grace, is found in a vision of absolute freedom in which the subject in which you and I find all of nature available as raw material in the theandric work of crafting a life lived in response to God's creative love. In this vision, nature, including the body, need not impose involuntary constraints on the perfection of human life. It's a vision in which any failure of the self, any failure of self-realization as saint, as perfect human, constitutes a tragedy worthy of the name of sin. Whether or not the failure is chosen, it's an explanation of how it is that we pray so often in Eastern Christian texts for forgiveness of all our sins, including the involuntary. Okay, moving on. This is undoubtedly a vision for human being, but can we really call it a moral vision as well? Is it so bright? Is the optimism so profound that it takes us out of the world of practicality? Is it so luminous that we get lost in the light? In other words, how can this anthropology that locates the primary force that moves us 
in nature. The primary motive force for life is in nature, not in the will, not in choice. How can such a vision help us make concrete moral choices, concrete moral decisions? If we are equally responsible for our involuntary movements as for our voluntary ones, what point is there in even thinking about how to work through moral dilemmas that present themselves to the, volun to the volition, to the will? This was precisely the question I asked when I first heard this phrase, involuntary sin, 20 years ago. How does this help me become a better person? The problem here parallels that of contemporary ethical theories which rely heavily on the notion of vision in shaping moral thought. What these theories of how we should act aim for is the recovery of moral realism. Now, what do I mean by realism here? Moral realism doesn't mean practical as opposed to theoretical. What I mean by realism here is that we should as an idea that we should be guided by moral principles and ideas that are outside of us, that are transcendent to us. They're real in the sense that they don't depend for their existence on our own choices and opinions. They transcend us. They call us to obedience. The extreme opposite of the realist position, there are plenty of other options on the way, but the extreme opposite would be relativism, the, or subjectivism, an idea that the sole source of moral decisions is my own opinion. I'm reminded here of Iris Murdoch, the great British philosopher of the 20th century, who adopted the phrase of Simone Weil, that the human will is, quote, obedience, not resolution, not decision. And she argued this against the tendency of uh, Western moral philosophy to concentrate so heavily on the human agent as the moral decider, apart from the world within which the moral agent acts. This is the problem realists have with most Western ethical traditions. In order to avoid pure relativism, Western ethical traditions seem always to want to construct systems of rules, moral laws, to constrain the individual subject. This is because, being true heirs of Augustine, the West consistently seems to identify human agency with the individual will. Not the whole person, but that part of the person that can choose. And so there's always built in this conflict between the chooser and the rule that is supposed to constrain the chooser. Naturally, then, the realist vision entails a new look at the whole notion of what it means to be an individual. And it's here that contemporary orthodox theologians, particularly, have willingly uh, entered into this debate. Perhaps the most notable is the Greek Orthodox philosopher and theologian, Christos Yanaras, who has found that his uh, basically maximian, 
inheritance, the theology he had received from the Greek fathers, especially St. Maximus, confronted Leonardas has uh, tried to explore uh, this inheritance using especially notions of Heidegger, the idea of being in the world, a richer, fuller notion of what it means to be an individual or a person. Like Murdoch, Jan Aras dismisses, or is dismissive of, a rule-based ethic, a principle-based ethic. For him, quote, the question of ethics takes as its starting point the freedom of morality. The name of his most uh, well-known book in the West, The Freedom of Morality. Freedom from any schematic valuation of utilitarian predetermination. Similar attitudes toward ethical systems can be found in a variety of contemporary orthodox theologians. Vegan Garoyan, for example, emphasizes the theandric nature of orthodox moral realism as a way of reconsidering the place of moral norms within this tradition. He says, quote, Christ's rules and commandments are obligatory not because he is in authority, whose reason and purpose are external to us, but because they belong as virtue to the total character of him who shares the same ontological status with us as human being, in whom that humanity has reached full maturity. The fact that moral realists, orthodox among them, still have to account for rules in their tradition points us to a major difficulty this position faces. How do we negotiate the disjunction between moral vision and individual agents? Is this vision obligatory of itself, per se, or does it become attractive to us because we simply share a consensus? What's the basis on, for this moral vision? How real is it? Or is it simply a construct, a construct of um, an ideology or a culture? Now, for a consistent Platonist like Murdoch, this is easily answerable in terms of the transcendent power of the ideal good. She abstracts us to a solution. But for the, a traditional orthodox view, such as that enunciated by St. John of Damascus, this would be uh, too far. St. John of Damascus owes too great a debt both to Christian revelation and Aristotelian moral reasoning to be satisfied with a purely Platonist resolution. The good can't just absorb us, obliterating any real notion of evil or virtue as moral striving, the body involved as part of the moral project. The work of a contemporary American theologian, Stanley Hauerwas, illustrates the difficulty of resolving this tension. Hauerwas emphasizes the importance of moral vision, and in that sense may be numbered with the realists. But Hauerwas has also an important emphasis on moral character, by which he essentially means the self. The self. Quote, he says, nothing about my being is more me than my character. Now, the problem with this is, as has been pointed out by a number of scholars in criticism of Ahawas, how do you relate moral vision, which sets the standard, 
sets the vision of reality, and moral character, which is, in a sense, coming out of me. How do you resolve this tension? On the one hand, a strong moral vision seems to attract, while at the same time the individual must strive, obviously, against competing attractions. Which is the, which is the vision I should follow? Which is the vision? In the light of this study, we might express this criticism in terms of an attempt by Hauerwas to marry a basically Augustinian individualism, concentration on the self, with a Maximian realism. Hauerwas himself draws explicitly on the work of Alastair MacIntyre, and he is sought to resolve the tension by conceiving of moral vision in terms of a shared uh, consensus, a narrative that we all agree on. But I think this just obscures the problem. Moral vision, then, when understood from the realist perspective, remains a puzzle for many Western thinkers who are far from ready to genuinely unself the self, as Iris Murdoch so memorably puts it. Moral vision is something that is often paid lip service to. It's much bandied about today, but it's not very well understood. Among conservative authors, the term seems to be used primarily as a way of shoring up traditional uh, rule-based ethical systems. We must recover our moral vision, meaning we must recover a certain number of particular specific uh, moral um, standards that should be forced, enforced, politically if necessary. Howes's project, I think, is more artful in his use of the concept but he still doesn't successfully escape the pull of Western individualism. A thoroughly vision-centered ethical thinking seeks to explain how moral agents are attracted, convinced, persuaded of the moral vision from within. It seeks to explain how the moral vision and the self's experience of that vision are, become one and the same. That would be a thoroughly orthodox vision-centered ethical thinking. David McNaughton sums up the situation with particular clarity. Quote, the realist line of thought suggests that the only way of arriving at correct moral conclusions in new cases will be to develop a sensitivity in moral matters which enables each one to see a particular case aright. Moral principles appear to drop out as at best redundant, and at worst, a hindrance to moral vision. I like this quote because of its emphasis on sensitivity, moral sensitivity. Conscience and canons. Conscience and canons. These are central to how the Eastern Christian tradition seeks to make us more sensitive to the vision that, is, that we receive in the church. I would argue that traditional orthodox teaching on the nature of human being and the implications of this for an understanding of the human will and morality provides an example of a truly Christian morality that can survive, if not the absolute destruction of moral norms, certainly their radical demotion. I would not claim that in orthodoxy, moral principles have simply dropped out. But at least for many Eastern Christians and Orthodox, 
the normative principles occupy a relatively unimportant part of the moral landscape. They're primarily seen as lands, landmarks for beginners. And it turns out that one key to understanding this position is the notion of involuntary sin that lies at the heart of these reflections. The anthropology within which this concept makes sense is one in which human beings remain intensely involved with objects of experience at every level. Far from disappearing into a featureless luminosity, the orthodox moral vision is one in which the human person emerges with every line and distinctive mark intact. To sum up, the realist position, which I have condensed uh, in a few words, is uh, exemplified in much of the orthodox tradition that I have been discussing, insofar as it holds that moral principles are far less important than moral sensitivity in shaping moral choices. This notion of sensitivity might prove a more useful idea than that of conscience, as the latter has become understood in contemporary ethical thought. If I'm correct in thinking that the orthodox tradition stands on the side of moral realism, then we ought to find that the tradition accepts the existence of some mechanism for fostering moral sensitivity. And I, can believe, I believe I can demonstrate several such practical mechanisms prayer, asceticism, and the canons of the church. And now I would like to treat the first two of these rather briefly, and the second at greater length. I'm sorry. Treat the first two very briefly, and the third at greater length. Let's go back to Damascene. Sensitivity and conscience, prayer and asceticism. We've seen that Damascene deals with the voluntary and the involuntary in uh, part of the uh, exposition of the Orthodox faith. He deals with it in the anthropological section rather than his rather briefer moral section of the same work. It follows that my application of this anthropology to the notion of involuntary sin has been by implication. But in the section of his moral chapters headed, quote, on the law of God, and the law of sin, we find Damascene dealing quite explicitly with sin as a phenomenon that can sometimes be willed and sometimes not willed. What makes this section of the exposition especially interesting is that what lies at its center is not the idea of sin really at all, but of conscience, synesis, and its role in the moral life. What Damascene says about the nature and function of conscience supports the conclusions I've been reaching all through these reflections concerning how the integrity of nature calls and equips human beings for the fullest measure of freedom from natural constraints. Ironically, the first impression one has of this section is that Damascene actually says there's no such thing as involuntary sin. He says, quote, sin results from the devil's suggestion and our own unconstrained and free acceptance of it, unquote. But I think this would be a misleading impression, because a little later on, John explicitly, uh, explicitly speaks of sinning, quote, even though I do will the law of God and love it, and do not will to sin, still I can sin. 
It seems that what St. John means by unconstrained and free acceptance of sin is not the sin itself, but of the deception, the plani, and the persuasion, the pitho, of the law of sin that operates through the desires of the flesh and, quote, the softness of pleasure. And immediately I'm reminded of that vision of Carpus that I've referred to a few times in the eighth epistle of St. Dionysius, the Areopagite, the vision of Carpus and of the sinners, quote, partly persuaded, unquote, by the vision, the illusion of evil. It's not, in fact, the sin that is willed at all. It's not the sin that is wanted, but the false good offered by the demons working through the undisciplined aspects of self. John doesn't say this explicitly, but I think it's reasonable to assume that what he means by an unwilled, involuntary sin is in a technical sense unconstrained and free, because as he argues in his chapter on, quote, the voluntary and the involuntary, what distinguishes these on the philosophical level is whether the movements arise within or outside the physical body. In other words, all passions that find an outlet in any kind of bodily movement are unconstrained and free in a physical sense, even though in a moral sense, they're against the will. The will, and he surely here means the natural will, not the gnomic will, but the natural will is always seeking the good, the quote, law of God, unquote, even if, as it operates in the objective world through deliberation, gnoming, the will is misled by the insinuating deceptions of the, quote, law of sin, unquote. Okay. In this way of thinking, conscience is not so much an inner human faculty for shaping choices, as it is the presentation to the consciousness of the law of God for which the human nature longs by nature. Damascene defines conscience as, quote, the law of the mind. It's more like consciousness than it is a little voice reciting the rules for good behavior. The law of the mind presented to the mind as vision. Everything we've seen concerning John's philosophical presupposition should caution us against regarding this, quote, law of the mind as abstract moral dictates, rather like the famous or infamous categorical imperative of Immanuel Kant. No, he means by law of the mind that the conscience is an imprint within human nature of the divine energia or form of the transcendent good, the law of God. Certainly the relationship between these two laws is far from static. In the best Neoplatonic tradition, the connection is one of dynamic attraction and interpenetration. He says the law of God enters into epibaino, the human mind, the noose. It is admitted almost one, uh, almost one might say like a lover into the noose. This law attracts Ephelko, the noose to itself, and spurs it on, Nito, to conscious action. It follows that the conscience is fundamentally attracted to the energia of God's law, rejoicing, sinedo, 
says St. John. Clearly, uh, pun, making a pun between a word for rejoicing and a word for conscience. And in this way, the self finds itself frustrated in the search for what it longs for only by the miasma thrown up by demonic deception and counterfeit goods in the flesh. So lying at the root of this account of conscience is, God, is John's guiding principle of the integrity of the natural. And as we have seen, this vision of human flourishing in accordance with nature is also a theandric, Christological vision. And that is why John concludes chapter 95 of the Exposition of the Faith with a reminder that the final way to that sensitivity so necessary for the life of virtue is union with the incarnate Christ through the Holy Spirit. He says, quote, It is impossible. It is impossible to observe the commandments of the Lord except by patience and prayer. You can't become one with whom, the one you desire except by becoming one with the one you desire through prayer and patience. And so we have come here to the importance of prayer and asceticism in the moral life. The vision of human flourishing presented in this brief section of the exposition of the faith depends on sensitivity to the call of the one for which the soul truly desires. The law of God does not present itself as propositions, but as the lover. And conscience, the quote, law of the mind, unquote, does not respond so much by deductive reasoning, by a kind of moral calculus, but by responding in love, by loving actions. It's true. Damascene does not argue that the attractive power of the law of God exhausts the moral enterprise. The laws, the nomos, may indeed be expressed by many nomoi, or moral principles, and in this, sacred scripture abounds. And, if, and not only sacred scripture, but also natural reasoning can discover many nomoi. But if there is, in fact, here a natural law theory at work, I think we would have to say it is one in which nature does not constrain us, does not govern us by means of rules. It's a natural law theory in which nature spurs us on toward final fulfillment and union with the transcendent good. This is why it's so necessary to bring the more unruly aspects of nature, especially the critical reason and the physical body, under a form of discipline or ascesis necessary to realize the unrealized potential locked away within each human being. I think it would be likely that Damascene would have endorsed the view I quoted from Nick Norton, the view that genuine moral sensitivity is far more important than knowledge or even, at times, observance of ethical principles. Now, I, I now would like to deal with the canons, moral sensitivity and the canons of the church. Turning to the canonical tradition, it could well be argued that I am contradicted, that Damascene is contradicted. 
Because in the one way of looking at the canonical collections um, in Eastern Christianity, uh, both in the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church as well, we might find exactly that kind of uh, reliance on norms and rules and normative principles that prevents orthodoxy, prevents Eastern Christian thought from manifesting a truly realist moral vision. The tradition of enacting canons is a very ancient one. It's an apostolic origin. Acts 15 records that the apostles established re regulations regarding Christian dietary practices. Prohibition on the eating of blood. And following this precedent, there have been numerous authoritative statements emerging within the tradition, regulating many, or apparently regulating many aspects of life. Not only matters of cult and worship, but also sexual practices, rules against killing and violence, and so forth. The Council of Trullo, held in 692, provides an especially rich seam of canonical moralizing. It touches on such issues as clergy living with women, not supposed to, running an inn, clergy are not supposed to do that either, clergy are not supposed to charge interest on a loan or gamble, and then everybody is supposed to be banned from attending theatrical performances, there are rules against marriage to close relatives, rules against canons against consultations with fortune tellers, the training of prostitutes, adultery, furnishing drugs for an abortion, and many other things. And there are other canonical sources, especially the so-called, quote, canonical epistles of St. Basil the Great and other patristic authors that contain many specific moral directives on these and other topics. So it must be admitted that there is, and it must be admitted, that there is a tendency within even the Orthodox tradition today to view the canons as forming a kind of moral, quote, code, albeit a relatively inefficient one, and one that could do with some, quote, improvement along the lines of Western legislative models. Christos Yanaris, who I've already cited, is especially scornful of this way of thinking. But it must be, uh, it must be admitted that the tendency is quite old, going back at least as far as the medieval commentators whose collections conflated ecclesiastical canons with the nomoi of imperial Byzantine legislation. So, but if this tendency to regard the canons as setting out a moral code were the dominant one, then I think my argument with respect to the significance of Damascene, natural integrity, and this the entire theological tradition in shaping an orthodox moral vision it would collapse. Legalism in the canonical tradition would contradict the vibrant anthropological vision that holds to the possibility of overcoming all involuntary constraints in the fulfillment of the theandric potential of human being. Fortunately, however, there's enough evidence from within the canonical tradition itself to counter the idea that the canon should be read as a legal code. And it's because of this that most Orthodox writers and most people who study the, the Orthodox canons themselves, and most people who study the Orthodox canons, would insist that the canons are not instances of illegal positivism at work 
They are not legal principles imposed from above. No, they are intended to be re-articulations of the fundamental faith of the church. Canons do not command with their own extrinsic authority. They are eruptions of the same law of God that Damascene saw reflected in the law of the mind. They are a divine human synergia made visible in the language of jurisprudence or aesthetical counsel. John Erickson puts it this way, quote, Canon suggests an absolute and universal rule or standard as old as the church itself and handed down as part of traditions. In his canonical epistles, St. Basil the Great constantly refers to the canons as uh, what we have learned from the ancients, what we have been taught, what the fathers have handed down to us. To be sure, a canon may have to be restated or reformulated from time to time in view of particular circumstances, but that does not mean that it was made, whether by St. Basil or any other legislator. It was a rule of the universal church and had always been so. It had been observed everywhere since the time of the apostles, and after that it was simply found. Unquote. Or as Louis Patsavos puts it more succinctly, quote, holy canons are temporal expressions of eternal truths. Unquote. A canon is therefore absolute and universal, not in its form, not in the words that are used. These are always historically contingent and always require interpretation, management, economia management in application, but insofar as a canon participates in transcendent truth, that is how it, uh, it speaks with authority. So a canon is a kind of guide. The original Greek word uh, is drawn from the building sciences. It means um, a plumb line used to determine a straight line. So a canon is a tool to be used in crafting a life in accord with the design, the telos, the form of the gospel. Father Stanley Harakas emphasizes that canons are not to be understood as, quote, heteronymous, externally imposed norms, unrelated to the goals and purposes of human nature, unquote. Rather, they are laws discovered within by a conscience rendered sensitive to the rule of faith. And if you want an example of where economia is actually to be found within the canonical tradition, I refer you to Canon 102 of the Council in Trula. Church canons are not then organizing principles for the ecclesiastical political structures. And they're not uh, moral norms imposing outside rules. No, an apt metaphor might be to think of the orthodox canonical tradition as a kind of um, fossil record in which is preserved evidence of precisely that kind of moral vision that realists, as McNaughton describes them, would seek to set up. It's a vision in which human perfection is fostered by an emphasis on sensitivity over principles. And among the most important fossil finds in this rich moral bedrock, are specific canons 
dealing with what we would call involuntary sins. And I will, in the next talk, take us to two areas of particular interest in this regard. And we will look especially at canons and the liturgical traditions that go with those canons that deal with two, four, two particular kinds of involuntary sins. Miscarriage and participation in a necessary war. Thank you.